Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Do you want to initiate a life of adventure and start your own location-independent business that can support you from anywhere? Then go check out the new manifesto on lifestyle design, authored by yours truly, Buy Your Own Island, now available on Amazon. It's been called inspiring and empowering and one of the best new books on entrepreneurship. Lifestyle design for 2015 and beyond. Look for it on Amazon or go download the audiobook for free at buyyourownisland.com forward slash audio dash book. Hey, so I'm joined by a new friend today. His name is Fred Parada. He's the co-founder of Tortuga Backpacks. He's an avid traveler and has visited or lived in over a dozen countries. And uh, Fred created this backpack business based on an actual backpacking trip that he made through uh, Eastern Europe back in 2009. And it's really quite interesting how he took that experience, his travel experience, and parlayed it into... uh, took a backpacking experience and turned it into a backpack business. And so I'm really excited to have him here today uh, to pick his brain and learn about how he's created this backpack business based upon his backpacking experience. Fred, he's also pretty interesting because he previously worked at Google as a AdWords specialist and also freelance for travel startups like Airbnb, WeHostels, and Lyft. So Fred, I just wanted to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me, Danny. Good to be here. Fred, perhaps you can kind of expand on that little standard bio that I just uh, uh, introduced you as and help me and the listener to get to know you a little bit better. Sure. Uh, So I guess going all the way back, um, after college, started working at Google, uh, which was a very cool job and and very interesting when I started out, uh, mostly managing advertising campaigns for a a set book of clients that we worked with. It was a very interesting industry. I managed mostly online dating clients, so that was pretty interesting. Went to uh, their yearly meetup uh, industry conference, so a little bit scarred by that and some of the people I had to work with there, Um, but uh, kind of quickly figured out that even though I was working at what was then the number one place to work at on, on pretty much every list, that I wasn't really happy working for someone else, so had kind of already started looking for other opportunities and wanted to start something on my own, and then uh, we can get into a little bit if you'd like, but uh, went on this trip and kind of ran into a problem that I really identified with and had recently read The 4-Hour Workweek, and a few different things came together and thought there was an opportunity to create a business, and then started down that path in in 2009, and now it's uh, just turned into 2015, and we're still here. Awesome. So I want to go back a second. Tell me a little bit about what was working at Google like, because I've been to the Google campus. Uh, me and my friend tried to get in, but we couldn't. But I've heard, <laughs> I've heard it's, it's pretty relaxed, you know, and um, people are playing games and playing football all the time, and they're not really too strict on, you know, when you show up as long as you get the work done, right? I mean, it's it's a pretty good environment to, to work in, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that, you know, they're one of the most popular places to work and that a lot of the stuff that they, I think, were pretty early to or even pioneered is now pretty standard for the big tech companies and startups and things like that. 
Um, it's, it is a, I guess relaxed is, is one word to use, a relaxed place to work. And it's, it's very easy to get comfortable there. You know, they provide most of the meals. There's all kinds of great benefits. Um, you know, where the department that I worked in uh, with advertising was, I was fresh out of college and so was pretty much everyone else. It was just like the next step. You know, you go to high school, you go to college, then this was like a post-college thing where you were around all people your same age, everyone was new in town. You know, it was a great uh, social aspect that way. So it's very easy to have your whole social life be Google and just get very comfortable at that job. Um, and that was something I, maybe this is being contrarian or stubborn or something, but I, I always tried to distance myself from that a little bit, like to have friends outside of Google and things like that, just so I wasn't <laughs> totally beholden to them in some way. That that part scared me a little. Uh, you if know, you read I mean, Dave Eggers... On the, on the big bad Google, right? Completely. Exactly. I mean, not, yeah, they weren't, you know, bad or anything like that. It just seemed like a slippery slope to, you know, working there for the entire rest of my life, which was a little scary. I, I remember we were peeking in on, like, some board meeting or something like that, and we are like, oh, look at Google's having some top-secret discussion about... Something, you know, space travel, perhaps. <laughs> and uh, we found out they were just talking about setting up a, a ping pong tournament for next year. Like you know? Yeah, do, don't be duped by it, like, looking official. It's probably about, yeah, ping pong or, you know, 90% of the time, something about advertising. So <laughs> nothing too interesting. That's amazing. So here you were. You, you landed this job at Google, and... Um, you must have felt like coming out of college that this was like a dream gig that, you know, you had made it and it must have been such a sense of accomplishment. But I guess you started to to deviate from that thinking uh, as you worked there and, and you wanted to strike out on your own. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I guess I'd always had that idea or thought that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but frankly, hadn't really done much about it <laughs> until starting Tortuga. Um so it was sort of, you know, a pipe dream. It was something that I thought I would like and uh, would just work well for me. You know, I would rather be the one running the show than uh, taking orders from anyone, like like a lot of entrepreneurs, I think. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, it was awesome working there. I'm uh, certainly not ungrateful or anything for the opportunity, but after a couple of years, kind of quickly fell into into a rhythm of doing the same thing, not feeling very challenged. And in the department that I worked in, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for advancement. If you were an individual contributor, if you wanted to be a manager, there was a very clear uh, promotion path and uh, and all that. But if you wanted to, to be in kind of in the weeds and be working with clients or, you know, be really hands-on and not being a manager, there was less of a defined path. Um, and there just wasn't much that I saw that, was like the next opportunity I really wanted to jump to. So, you know, kind of started disengaging or coasting a little or whatever you want to say um, and was kind of looking looking for something else. So the learning curve kind of flattened out basically after a few months or uh, after some time working there. Um, I have one more question about Google that I want to ask you. What, what did you learn while working there about uh, business or marketing and how did you apply that to what you do today? It's uh, a good question. Um, yeah, I learned – it was interesting because you got insight into a lot of very different businesses. Um, I mean, even we probably worked with anywhere from 15 to 20 or 30 clients at a time. So you got uh, some pretty good insights into a lot of different businesses, especially on 
kind of the marketing side, copywriting, how they message their business, uh, how they get people from just visiting the site the first time to actually becoming a paying customer. And uh, I said before, I worked mostly with online dating clients. So got to learn a, a bit about that world. But I also worked with a lot of uh, totally different business models, education, real estate, uh, a little bit of everything pretty much while I was there. So uh, it was very interesting breath-wise to start learning about these different businesses and uh, in kind of a more real-world way than uh, the case studies that I had done uh, in college. Uh, and then also, obviously, got uh, a great education, uh, PhD or better, in uh, Google AdWords, which the mechanisms behind that apply to most online advertising. You know, just understanding that is a great basis for Facebook and now Twitter and all these other uh, ad networks that you can do. So uh, it was kind of a great leg up in the advertising and marketing world too. Okay, so tell me, what are your top uh, two or three tips for AdWords that most people might not know about? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I've seen a lot of people go the wrong way with with AdWords. It's easy to jump in and be very overwhelmed and confused. And I certainly used to work with, uh, or at least see a lot of people that were spending a lot of money and didn't know what they were doing, which those were the alarming cases. Um, I, I guess one of the the main things is it's really important to be consistent at every stage of the process from when someone types in a keyword to seeing your ad to then seeing your landing page. So um, if your keywords, we can use an example just uh, for my business, you know, if your keyword, if someone searches for travel backpack as opposed to say carry on backpack, if they search for travel backpack, they should see an ad that says travel backpack and then the landing page they land on should also have that phrase versus if they search for something that seems really close, but is a little bit different, say uh, study abroad backpack, you know, that seems pretty similar. Study abroad is a type of travel, you know, you don't um, need to worry about the specifics there. Uh, that's what you would think. But if you do show someone who searches for study abroad backpack, if you show them an ad that says that, they're more likely to click it. And then if they see a landing page that, that has that on it and has some copy about why what you need in a backpack if you're studying abroad, that sort of thing, then they're going to be more likely to convert. Whereas most people who are just getting started with, with AdWords uh, or any online advertising will just throw a bunch of keywords that all seem kind of relevant to their business, just lump them all in together, show one generic ad for all of them, and send all those people to the same uh, landing page, uh, that's not going to convert as well as uh, if you keep it all really tightly themed and targeted like I uh, explained a second ago. Wow, that's great. So just keeping things very uh, consistent is one of the keys to success um, with your ad, your landing page, uh, your follow-up emails. I think that's really great advice, Fred. I think a lot of Entrepreneurs are very scattered, I think, especially solopreneurs, uh, mm -hmm. with all the different things they have to do. And, I, you know, my background is a marketing consultant as well. And I, I try to advise people, like, keep a consistent brand, for example. You know, like, they'll have one designer design their website. They'll have another do their business cards. Another one design ads for them. And it, it all looks like, it looks like five different companies that are, are <laughs> you know, rather than just, just one company. <laughs> yeah, the consistency is important. And then that's what, People then start to recognize your whatever color scheme, logo, kind of if you're using the same phrasing over and over, your tagline or whatever, then then that starts to resonate and you can start to build a brand in those people's minds. Especially if you're some if you're a business that's really niche. You know, the more specific you are, the easier 
the easier it is to do that with your target market because they're going to be smaller. Um, and if you're really, if you have a really specific specific brand, and with advertising, you know, a lot of times you're going to be competing against these big companies, Amazon or eBay. Um, you know, in our case, maybe like an REI or eBags or something like that. And you know, those big companies, they might have a few people working on their their ad campaigns, but they're not going to get down into the the really, really specific keywords and making sure every ad is perfectly tailored to those. Whereas if you're a small niche business, you know, you can, you can spend the time to do that where they aren't going to. And that's where you can kind of maneuver around them a little bit instead of trying to compete with them just on, on price. Okay. I see. And also you worked with those online dating guys. Um, so what, what would you say worked particularly well for that niche or what did you see working well with those guys? Uh, pictures of attractive women. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I mean, you've probably seen a lot of uh, dating sites banners around the web. Pretty much everyone has, regardless of you know your demographic or what you're searching for. You know, you're going to come across those guys. Um, but yeah, the you know kind of similar lessons there. Even I worked with a lot of um, there, are of course, like the big sites in that in that category, um, eHarmony and Match and things like that, but. I worked with a lot of sites or companies that owned a lot of very specific sites. So some of them were based on uh, religious affiliation or race or ethnicity, um, things like that, where people may want to meet someone within their same group, you know, someone that they share religion with or that shares, you know, similar ethnic background or something like that. Um, and those were the ones where, uh, again, you know, you can kind of avoid competing with the biggest competitors who might eat your lunch if you're trying to compete with them when someone searches for dating or find a date. But, um, you know, if you have, uh, you know, there's a site, Christian Mingle, for example, that's pretty big. Um, so, you know, if you're searching, someone searching for meeting a Christian or Christian dating or something like that, and you can show them a site that's specifically tailored to that, then you're more likely to, to be able to win their business. It's the same way that very early in the online dating uh, world, they were a Jewish dating site, um, and you know, offered a value proposition that that the other bigger sites couldn't do. Okay, so really honing down and, and targeting it down to their interests. Um, and photos of attractive women work work very well, as you mentioned. <laughs> I think uh, that may be true in any industry. Not to not to come <laughs> off as as sexist, but you know, that's what that's what all those guys were doing. Or attractive men too. I think that works well too, because uh, I saw a girl that posted. Uh, a blog post about the sexiest male travelers in the world, and uh, her site went broke after uh, her site went down after like an hour or so because of all the traffic she was getting. <laughs> <laughs> so sex sells, did, I guess. <laughs> and I'm trying to imagine. Did we make the list? <clears throat> did I make the list? Uh, I did actually. Did we? Yeah. <laughs> hey, congratulations! That's that must be why you knew about it. Then was I on the list? If not, then I'm glad it went down. I have one. I have one good shirtless photo, you know, where I'm kind of flexing. So I think that's what got me on the list. So, <laughs> oh, I'm gonna have to get someone to Photoshop some for me then, maybe next year. <laughs> one of my proudest achievements <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but yeah, you got You got a year, Fred, to uh, to train and, and get ready for the next round. So, I'm on it. <laughs> yeah. So I'd imagine, like, as far as the, the headlines, I mean, the, the, probably the best thing that would work for that niche is. Uh, the one thing to say to get out of the friend zone or something like that, you know, or, or how to hypnotize her into bed. I mean, I'm sure you see a lot of those, those kind of ads. Yeah, uh, definitely. That's, um, you know, the, 
kind of getting getting eye grabbing, eye catching headlines. Um, you know, again, being specific with you know if you're catering to a certain certain audience or something like that. And you know, a lot of the I guess more mainstream sites uh, were hesitant to get to get too risque or too creative with their ads, but some of the sites that were um, let's say they're more in a gray zone uh, were were a little bit better about the copywriting and, you know, had, had a little bit more personality to their ads. Uh, that's hard to do in AdWords because there's so few characters that you can use, but, um, you know, just being interesting enough that people would click it. And then once they get to your site, them a little bit longer uh, spiel or videos or pictures or whatever to let them know uh, what you're about. But, you know, don't be afraid to, to have a personality. And if people, if people agree with it and, you know, like the vibe that you're giving off, then they'll become your customers. And if not, they probably wouldn't have anyway. So, you know, don't be afraid to show some personality too. Okay. Awesome. And I think one guy that does it really well, um, I don't know if you've seen these ads, but it's targeted to my interest is, uh, Benny, uh, fluent in three months. Have you, uh, are you familiar with him, Fred? I know his site. I haven't seen any ads though. He is everywhere. If you go to any travel-related blogs, you'll see his uh, display ads. Uh, that's that's called the ad network, right? When it's it's the yeah, ads to show on other people's websites. Yeah, it was probably um, in the case of something like that. It's probably a retargeting ad, which means that you went to his site and then he can show uh, ads to you based on uh, cooking, uh, setting a cookie in your browser because you visited his site. Oh, okay. It's a great and way I've, to bring people back if they've already visited once. And I've heard retargeting is a great way to, yeah, bring people back, and it's very cost-effective, and it helps build your brand. And I think what he does really well is he combines that personality that you mentioned um, but also has that compelling offer. So that's kind of like the best of both worlds, I'd say, right? Yeah. I mean, it's easy for people to think, okay, now this is you know business writing if it's on their website or in an ad or something. So all of a sudden they're speaking in very stilted, formal, dry language, you know, but you just want to talk like you're a person, even if it's for business, right? Because you're talking to to a person individually in a way, right? The That single person who's reading your website, you have to act like you're talking one-to-one, just like you and I would be talking and I would be telling you about a product, you know, even if it wasn't something I was selling, it was just something I, I liked and was telling you about it. That's kind of the approach you need to take, whether it's an ad or the copy on your site, um, because otherwise it's just going to be so dry and boring. People are just going to tune out. Yeah, awesome. That's a great point. I, I have to. I struggle with that a little bit myself because I have a, a mailing list, and sometimes I just feel like I'm I'm blasting out to whoever, blasting my mails out into space, and but then I get I get real people responding back, and the people I've never met or heard of and I have to remember that I'm, I'm speaking directly to each person individually so I think that's that's really really important um Fred let's let's shift gears a little bit uh tell me about since you you left Google you went backpacking uh to Europe and, and this was just a two-week vacation because you were you were still working as an employee at that point right yeah I was still at Google then so th- this was your first uh was this your first backpacking experience yeah, it was really my first time out of North America. Okay, and so obviously something changed in you as a result of this experience. I mean, I know the official line. Uh, <laughs> according to your website, you guys experienced the nightmare of having to bring all of your luggage in your backpacks and um, 
Let me just say that it's, I think it, what you guys experience is a common frustration to a ton of backpackers. And what really cracks me up is when I see these people, they bring like their whole house with them, you know, and they, they have like a huge backpack on their back and then they have another one on their front and, oh my God, they just look miserable. But with you guys, I mean, what your, your friend, his, his backpack strap broke after the first day. It was like a Jansport and yours was just horribly inconvenient, right? Yeah, I, I think we experience something that most people do, um, especially, you know, in my case, first-time backpackers or first-time people traveling, you know, with a backpack, even if you don't identify as a backpacker. But, you know, you get the same one that you see everyone else carrying and you think is the way to go, which is the, the tall, skinny, cylindrical one, uh, which is what you see on every, you know, gap year student or study abroad student or anyone backpacking. And, that's just what you assume is the right one. I mean, I did a bunch of research online. I went to the REI store. I went to the North Face store, you know, was trying to find the the perfect one because it was something, uh, uh, somewhat of an investment, you know, spending a uh, hundred, 200 bucks on a bag. And uh, I ended up with a, it was a perfectly good and well-constructed bag, but uh, quickly realized that it was that type of bag is not very good for travel. The The biggest thing, well, there's two things. Uh, one is that it's not carry-on sized, so it's a bit of a hassle. Uh, at that time, it was mostly just a hassle of having to carry it and having just more stuff that I'm bringing that I didn't truly need. Uh, now, obviously, there's a lot more cost involved uh, in checking a bag. The other big thing uh, in terms of design, those kind of bags open from the top, so uh, I kind of... <laughs> I, I make the comparison that it's like packing a garbage bag. Everything goes in, comes out through that that same hole, and if you need something that's halfway down the bag, you got to dump out the top half of stuff. So that's not really ideal if you're in a hotel or, in our case, we're staying in hostels. So you know, I had my stuff strewn across the room trying to find the shirt that I wanted. So uh, it became pretty clear that that was not an ideal layout for, for traveling, and um, we sort of quickly realized that, you could have something laid out a bit more like a suitcase where the whole front opens either down or to the side like a book, um, which is actually how Jeremy's bag was uh, laid out a bit more like that. Um, he just had some some other problems with it, and it was kind of big and very uh, – had a rolled 1970s, 80s kind of look. It's a little outdated looking, but uh, had a little bit better layout. So we're able to kind of see the problems with my bag and then see the direction of a solution with his bag. Okay, so here you guys were, you were in Croatia, uh, or somewhere around there, and uh, before you, this trip, you had this inclination to start your own business, but you didn't know what. You really wanted to uh, be your own boss. Was this the point when like a, a light bulb just switched in your head, and you realized, hey, we might have something here? Yeah, I think it kind of slowly built throughout the trip. You know, at first, it's the classic uh, thing where, oh, this thing sucks. I don't like this. You know, you're not, I didn't really have my head in a solution kind of space or thinking about solutions. I was just complaining about the problem. Uh, and then after a while, we, you know, kind of got to talking about it a little bit and uh, started brainstorming a little bit more. And um, I think I mentioned in the introduction that uh, we had both recently read the four hour work week. So uh, I think that got my head into the right space uh, to some degree. And more importantly, uh, that book at least lays out a rough blueprint for how to make a product and build a business. Um, it's, it's pretty basic and certainly doesn't hold your hand through that whole process, um, nor is any, uh, are any two uh, journeys the same. 
but it definitely gives you at least some direction. I mean, he talks about where to find uh, suppliers for products and how to uh, white label an existing product or uh, create your own, that sort of thing. So um, that gave us a little bit of confidence to like, okay, here's a blueprint we can sort of follow. And we've got this problem that we've identified and think that you know there could be a, a bigger market. We kind of have a rough idea of what the solution would look like. And those two things kind of came together and made us think, oh, we can definitely make this product. It'll be easy. <laughs> you say it'll be that easy, like, true, uh, but, like you're being you know. sarcastic there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we thought it at the time, right? It, um, yeah. I don't know. I guess the 4-Hour Workweek's just written so well that you think like, oh, I can follow this. I'll have something up and running in a few weeks. This will be great. I'll have a nice passive income and, and all that. But uh <laughs> You know, it's not quite that easy. I don't know if it actually was. I don't know if it's his writing that makes it sound easy, or if things were easier. You know, when he was uh, building uh, his first company there. But um, times have definitely changed. But you know, that at least gave us a little bit of confidence to kind of jump in. And once we started moving and getting a little momentum, by the time we hit any real problems, then we we're already so committed to it that we figured, well, we better just figure out how to how to get over this hurdle and keep going. Yeah, Fred, and if, if I could just interject there, um, to anyone who's listening, I, I don't know anyone who started a lifestyle business, a four-hour workweek business, uh, working four hours a week. Because um, I've talked yeah. to a lot of I mean, certainly not when you were starting it, right? <laughs> no, I mean, I can speak from my own experience. Um, you know, the first two years of my first business, I, I was barely making any money at all. You know, I, I could barely support myself. Um, and uh, it wasn't until years four and five when I kind of, the third year, I kind of transitioned it to more of a lifestyle business because I, I implemented different uh, systems, I think. Um, and I don't want to get, go too into that now, but I mean, I, I've met lots of people. And even Tim Ferriss, you know, his, his Muse business was a supplement business, but he started out, he was working, he was trapped in it. He was working 100 hours a week. And then all he did was he just, he just evolved that existing business so that it could run without him. But he was, he was working his ass off to get that business off the ground. I think that's a very, very important distinction um, and, and much more closely aligned with uh, the reality of, of having a location and independent business. Wouldn't you say, Fred? Yeah, it's it's easy to get misled by the title, which, I mean, even he admits is, you know, a title designed to grab people's attention and get them curious or get them indignant and want to read it or something. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, if you're going to build something that's going to be real and lasting, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to take four hours a week. I mean, maybe maybe there are some business models where that'll work, but those are also the kind of business models where, you know, one thing changes in a few weeks and you're out of business. Um, you know, they're, you're built on uh, a castle built on sand or whatever they say. Um, but yeah, to build, you know, a real brand or something really long and lasting, you're going to have to put in the work. Um, and there's not Certainly not anything wrong with that. There's, uh, it's very enjoyable to. Uh, we we're chatting when we first connected here that, um, you know, it's it's really exciting to come into, quote unquote, into work every day uh, and work on something that you care about and really like. So, um, yeah, who cares what the hours are if you're enjoying them? I mean, part of part of his description of the four hour work week was that he was only spending that much time on the the stuff he didn't want to be doing, the the real work, if you will. Um, but you know, he was also enthusiastic about that business and, you know, would take some time to travel. And then when he wanted to, to really get it to grow or implement some new idea or marketing campaign or something then he would, you know, sit down and do the work, which is what you have to do if you want to build something real. 
Yeah, exactly. And at the end of the day, it comes down to rolling up your sleeves and getting the stuff done. And I think as an entrepreneur, um, when you start a company, you're not only the CEO, but you're also the delivery boy, too. (laughs) Personally delivering the product to customers because, you know, you really have to kind of get hands-on experience with all aspects of running the business. Once once you have that hands-on experience, then I think you can uh, step back for a second and implement systems and get people to run these systems for you. And that's where the leverage comes in. That's when you can focus on other things like lifestyle pursuits or uh, taking your business to the next level. Would you would you yeah, agree with the, that assessment, Fred? Yeah, and the I mean, you can't build a system if, uh, like you said, you don't know what the process should be. You can't just make up a system and assume that's going to work well. Um, and you also can't make a system until you've proven that there's some kind of a business there. I mean, you know, we've made a, a big effort to systemize things over time. Uh, but, you know, if no one's buying your product or you don't have a, your product finished and, and shipped, uh, none of the systems will matter because they're just optimizing zero, which, you know, is still zero. Okay, Fred, so I want to go back to when you guys first had this idea uh, to create this physical product for a backpack. Um, what I really like about what you guys did is you, you took action and you made this happen. I mean, a lot of people have ideas, but it takes them years before they act on it or they, they never do. Um, and, and I have theories as to why, they, why that is, but I'm not going to go into that now. What, what did you guys do when you, you came home? What was the first thing you guys did? Did you guys validate this idea by um, creating advertisements on, on Google? Because that's kind of your background. Uh, the very first thing we did, which I actually came across this email exchange recently, but the very first thing we did was buy a domain name, which is obviously, I mean, doesn't really accomplish anything, um, but was just a tiny little step, was something I already knew how to do. The first tiny little step to, to having a little bit of momentum and, and moving in the right direction. Um, but yeah, in retrospect, we definitely did not do a good enough uh, or much of a job of validating the idea. I think we probably tested uh, some AdWords ads, but um, you know, with with our product, it was a little bit tricky because it's going to be a higher price point. We couldn't really, we didn't have anything to really mock up a fake product to to show to people uh, that we drove to the site. So, um, you know, in retrospect, we did a lot of things probably wrong if you go buy the book or buy a lot of books. Uh, that tell you to validate ideas, but uh, the first run of products that we did, uh, which we can uh, talk about if you'd like uh, now or down the line, uh, but that kind of ended up being our uh, our validation. Uh, but we didn't really honestly validate the idea well enough uh, until we started making stuff. Okay, well, I still love what you guys did, which was, um, like you said, registering the domain. That was kind of your first step towards uh, manifesting this uh, idea that you guys had, and I think I think a lot of people they they have ideas and then they'll they'll register the domain or see that it's available, but then they have like a hundred domains you know that are just parked and they're not doing anything with. What did you guys do after you registered the domain? Yeah, after that we we started looking at the original thought that we could find a bag um, because Jeremy's bag already existed. Jansport made something like that. We thought we could find something that already existed and kind of. Uh, either tweak it or just change the brand on it, essentially white label something. Um, 
So we started going through uh, one of the sites Tim Ferriss recommends in that book is ThomasNet. Uh, so we started going through there, and that, that's a directory of suppliers. I'm not sure if it's exclusively U.S. or um, is just focused on the U.S., but um, we started going through there and looking at some of the products that were listed, contacting people, um, just kind of trying to do the research and trying to find, um, you know, again, we're an easy, quick solution that, you know, let's look through a few bags, we'll find the right one, we'll put our logo on it, and there we go. Um, didn't turn out that way, but uh, at least got us kind of researching and getting down to more detailed, uh, had us outlining in a more detailed way what actual features we wanted. You know, the, the front-loading thing was the biggest one, but, um, you know, it's a big big step from one feature or how a bag opens to having a full product. So uh, that got our minds kind of thinking about that. And uh, once we realized that was kind of a dead end, uh, we actually went on, I think we used Elance at the time, uh, and found an industrial designer and started getting to work on uh, a proprietary design. Okay. And by the way, um, what was that website you mentioned? ThomasNet.com? Yeah. Just Thomas, like the name, and then net.com. Okay. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Um, well, by the way, Fred, so while you were doing this, were you getting feedback uh, from people? Like, were you telling people about your idea and what you wanted to create? And were they saying, oh, yeah, that's great? Or were you keeping this idea close to the chest? Uh, no, we shared it, um, at least the gist of it. And I mean, part of, part of this whole process was when we came back talking to other people because, you know, we thought, oh, well, maybe there is a good solution and we just totally missed it in the initial research or, you know, we talked to the wrong people beforehand or whatever. Um, so we came back and, you know, asked other people who travel a lot what they carry, what they like, and, you know, kind of realized that there didn't seem to be an ideal solution or there was no consensus out there of like, oh, if you need this kind of product, you know, this is the this is definitely the brand to go with or anything like that. So, um, you know, we saw a lot of different solutions and none were perfect. No one really loved what they had for these kind of uh, international city to city type trips. Um, so, you know, we knew that there was an opportunity there and, you know, we shared some of these ideas that we had with people and they seemed to resonate, um, which was a good sign, but we knew that that wasn't, you know, real validation. And obviously it's a big step between, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And here's my credit card. (laughs) Well, still, I think it's good to, um, I know a lot of first time entrepreneurs, they have this idea and they'll keep it a secret, you know, and, when they keep it a secret, it stays on the shelf. And I think when you at least tell people about it, you can get some valuable feedback and know whether your idea is good or not. And I think more importantly, it's another small step to manifesting what you really want to do. Because if you you share it publicly, uh, you keep yourself accountable. And the more you you, you talk about it, the, the more likely you are to do it. At least that's what I think. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. The accountability is big, right? You start talking about this idea and then you know, you don't want to be, you don't want someone to ask you a couple of weeks later, hey, whatever happened with that? And you say, oh, I gave up on it or I quit or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Fred, talk me through this uh, process of um, how long was the path from initial concept to being ready to sell and getting your first dollar? How much money did it cost? How long did it take? And did you have investors? Uh, no investors, uh, but it was a very long process because we didn't know what we were doing at pretty much any stage of it. <laughs> uh, we 
we moved pretty quickly and had a design pretty fast um, after we hired a designer from Elance, um, you know, kind of went through a few different iterations with him, some back and forth. Um, and I think we had a finished design. We took this trip in uh, July or August. And then I think we had a finished design around maybe Thanksgiving or December or something like that. Uh, but from there, we spent a year plus, year and a half, figuring out manufacturing. Um, there's a post on our blog which kind of outlines our initial foray into working with suppliers, which did not go well. Uh, everyone said, you know, you have to make the bags in China. That's where all the stuff is done. That's how you get a good price, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay, that's what we'll do. Um, the first supplier that that we worked with and built a sample for us uh, was a referral from uh, from the first designer that we worked with. And, uh, you know, we excitedly waited several weeks. We sent them the specs, you know, couldn't wait to get the first sample. And then they sent us pictures of the first sample. And it was so bad, I had no idea how to explain how to get from there to what we actually wanted. It wasn't like, oh, it's imperfect, we'll get it there. It was just so far off what we wanted, I had no idea how what the next step would be. Um, the the pictures and uh, during this blog post, I, I'll share it with you so you can put in the show notes. But um, the bag they made was either like six feet tall or they put it on a girl who was only a foot and a half tall. I, I don't know. They sent these pictures. I was so excited to get them. And then I was just like horrified at what we got back. Um, <laughs> so then we kind of flailed around for a while and um wait fred you know, this who, who is... was this who was the designer did you outsource this uh on elance like were they u.s uh, yeah. based or were they somewhere else he was yeah he's based in the u.s um okay but uh yeah i i mean i guess outsourced in that we contracted him but uh he's based in the u.s so this was a product designer uh, how much did this product designer cost and were you paying them hourly or how did that how did that arrangement work um i believe this is going back now a few years. Um, I think it was project based, and then um, there may have been uh, kind of an hourly fee if we went over a certain amount of of time in the process. So, what would you recommend a budget for uh, designing a product like this? Um, I mean, it's it can definitely vary uh, with different types of products. For for what we did, um, soft goods, I would probably still budget if you're using a U.S. based designer firm, at least a few thousand dollars, um, you know, probably somewhere from two to 5,000, uh, depending on the complexity of the product. We've definitely seen uh, very different rates for even just the few products that we've done to date. Okay. I see. And then, so you guys were working at Google all the time while you had this, uh, idea brewing and you said it took a, a, a year and a half actually before you were able to manufacture this? Yeah, we're, uh, we're big on trial and error. We <laughs> do it the wrong way, figure out how to do it, and then kind of course correct later. <laughs> uh, so we actually ended up, after this uh, terrible sample from China, we thought, oh, well, let's go back to trying to make it in the U.S. Uh, the problem there is that a lot of U.S. factories, especially for this kind of stuff, soft goods, um, rely primarily on government and military contracts. So you know, they're able to charge quite a bit to to the government or military. They have these multi-year contracts that they get locked into, so they're not very interested in working with some wannabe up-and-coming company. Um, but we actually ended up eventually manufacturing the first batch of bags in Long Beach. Uh, we found a company there that was willing to to make them, and 
even though there was no language barrier and they were U.S.-based, they were terrible to work with. It was a horrible process. Uh, they also didn't care about us. They just happened to be willing to make the first batch. And, uh, you know, it, it was we got them made, which was the most important thing. We were able to ship, which is, is number one. Um, and in retrospect, I didn't know the term at the time, but in retrospect, that was our, our MVP, our minimum viable product, uh, because through all these iterations of design and suppliers, the bag kind of got, the design got uglied up a little bit. The, you know, some of the edges got a little sanded down. Um, so we were able to make something, but it was a very small batch. It wasn't, it didn't look like we intended it to. Um, but you know, ultimately we made it and were able to then start selling it, which is when you can really validate the idea, get feedback, um, you know, test prices, see what people pay and, uh, you know, make some actual progress. So at this point, the, the feeling must have been bittersweet, I imagine, at this uh, juncture, because you, you probably had mixed feelings like, yes, we finally uh, manifested our product, but it's not quite what we wanted. Yeah, I mean, they were mostly positive because, hey, we made something, you know, we we're making progress to what we wanted to do. Um, and we felt like we knew the, uh, at least the design wise, um, and we were happy with the with the functionality of the bag, um, you know, we knew it would still work well for for what it was intended. Feature wise, it came out how we wanted. Uh, just kind of aesthetically, it wasn't there. But you know, mostly we we're excited about all the positive aspects. Um, and you know, the the bags were made. They are they were what they were. So you know, we had to sell what we had, and uh, you know, got to got to that and started selling them, and people bought them. <laughs> So was it challenging uh, to market the product at this point, or you already have a background in marketing? Um, could you tell me a little bit, do you remember your first dollar or the first sale that you made? Yeah, the first sale that we made was to a customer in San Diego. Um, I believe it was a fireman um, in San Diego. Uh, I, won't, I won't share his name for, <laughs> for privacy reasons, but uh, I do remember that first one, and then we got featured in uh, Thrillist, which is... Uh, a daily email uh, kind of targeted at men with um, interesting products and restaurant openings and things like that in their city. There's a bunch of city-specific editions, and we were featured in the uh, Los Angeles one uh, where Jeremy and I were both living at the time. It's kind of our first little burst of sales where we had, you know, multiple in in a day or, uh, you know, maybe 10 across two days or something like that, and that was that was very exciting, but then, you know, quickly died off again afterwards. At what point did you send in your two weeks notice to Google? Uh, I, I left there in, let's see, that was the fall of 2010. So we had, uh, we hadn't manufactured, I left before we manufactured that initial run of bags. Um, so I was working at the Google San Francisco office, um, and actually, right before I left, uh, spent three months in Sydney on Google has something that's basically a work abroad program, kind of like a study abroad. You know, three months, you work in another office, uh, share what you know, learn from them, kind of three months, came back for one more quarter uh, in the U.S. And then uh, I moved down to L.A. So to work with the, the factory there to get these bags made. And that's when I started doing some freelance work on the side to pay the bills. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it wasn't making enough uh, at that point for you to make a full-time income. How long did it take uh, before you were able to do that? 
uh, to a full-time income about three years from when we started. Okay, okay. But it must have felt amazing that people were buying this and that you had this, uh, not just passive income, but you, you validated your idea and you had your own business on your hands. I mean, it must have felt wonderful that you you kind of broke free and you're own, your own boss now without having to uh, answer to your department head, right? Yeah, we could, you know, we could kind of see where we thought it could go. I mean, you know, when you start out, obviously, uh, well, in most cases, the business doesn't just take off right out of the gates, of course. Um, so, you know, we had, we had some sales, we're making some sales, we got good feedback on the product. Um, any of the negative feedback was stuff that we already knew, uh, like the aesthetic stuff I mentioned, or, um, you know, occasionally this feature could be better because of this. And, you know, we felt like it was all stuff that we knew and wanted to change, you know, in the next, next iteration of the bag. So we thought that was encouraging that, uh, people liked liked it as it was and that, uh, you know, the, the direction that we envisioned for it was also what people were asking for. So, um, you know, we thought if we could, if we could sell these bags, uh, and kind of redesign it based on some of that feedback and what we thought needed change, then, um, you know, we thought we could take the business to another level at that point. And, uh, like I said, that first batch was made in the U S so, uh, obviously we're, were more expensive uh, to manufacture than uh, now we make the bags in China. So that first batch we didn't really make any money on. It was more about can we prove that that people will buy this and you know start building towards something. Uh, Fred, I'm going to go through a lightning round here real quick because uh, we're getting short on time. Um, okay. Can you share a struggle in your business journey? What was the the low point uh, or a difficult struggle, and what were the lessons that you learned? Yeah, I think the the lowest point, I kind of uh, talked about it a bit already, but um, trying to find a manufacturer to to make the bags. You know, we felt a little bit helpless in that we didn't know what we were doing. We were trying to to make something in another country where there was a language barrier. We didn't know anyone. We didn't know who we were working with. Um, and, you know, we wanted to pay someone money to make this thing and couldn't find anyone to do it, which was very frustrating. Um, but I, I think what I learned there and uh, continued to learn afterwards in the business is that, um, you know, if you believe in something and you think there's a way that this thing will work, that you have to just keep going. You know, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of valleys and, and low points um, that, that you'll encounter in times when, you know, you think it's the business is in trouble or it's not going to make it, or this is stupid or whatever. But, um, those are the times when you need to hunker down and just keep moving forward. Even if you don't make a huge amount of progress each day, you know, if you just keep going and don't give up and, uh, you know, make some progress every day, then eventually those times will, will end and, and you'll push through them. It's like a pebble in your shoe, you know, it's there, but you just have to keep, keep going, right? Yeah. There's some, there's some saying, if you're going through hell, keep going. So, uh, yeah, follow that. <laughs> so, so what advice would you give to someone who, to avoid that similar hell, um, uh, in terms of manufacturers? Um, I guess to try to line, line up manufacturers during, or even before the design process, you know, have a sense of who can produce this product, um, that you're envisioning, you know, what, what kind of numbers are you going to have to make? You know, what is the minimum order quantity for that supplier? How many are they going to require you to make? What's a ballpark figure on what it will cost? You know, they've probably made something, uh, a good supplier will have made something similar to what you're doing, even if it's, 
you know, the features are very different. The one we use has made all kinds of bags and backpacks and stuff. So, um, you know, you can see from previous products, try to get a rough price so you know what you're getting into and, um, you know, work through through referrals as much as you can. Other people have made products. Um, you know, if you can find something that's similar but uh, in a different industry to what you want to do or, you know, someone that you can talk to and will help you and will point you in the right direction, any kind of a referral is uh, extremely helpful, especially once you start dealing with, with suppliers to know that you're working with someone reputable and, and trustworthy. Okay, gotcha. Awesome. So you also mentioned earlier that um, going through this whole process, you didn't know what you were doing. Uh, you said the four-hour work week was, made everything seem easy, but it felt a little bit short. What, uh, just curious now, in retrospect, um, what books or resources uh, do you find particularly helpful that you could recommend to people? Um, yeah, there's a. I have quite a few on the bookshelf that I really like. Um, there's okay, another. Yeah, I, I think Tim Ferriss has recommended some of these, but uh, I really like Persuasion uh, by Robert Cialdini. Um, and there's another book called The Twenty Two Immutable Laws of Marketing. And those are both kind of about how to how to really focus a product on a specific audience and niche and uh, how to sell it. What are some of those like emotional and psychological triggers that? Uh, you can build either into the product or into your website that uh, that will get people interested in and caring and, and want to buy it. Um, and the other one I really love is that I don't think people talk about enough is Blue Ocean Strategy. Um, and that is, I think, most helpful for if you're looking for business ideas. Uh, talks a lot about how um, very successful businesses uh, uses Southwest a few times as a case study, but they take a look at at an industry and see all the points that people are competing on and then figure out which ones really matter to customers and then eliminating the rest. So in Southwest's case, they really focus on, um, you know, point to point travel, these short haul trips, uh, kind of business, uh, cities, business trips, things like that. And then they eliminate all the frills that some of the other airlines focus on. And then they're able to, to deliver really cheap, uh, flights to customers. So it's a good way to kind of, uh, reimagine industries and figure out how to compete in a crowded area or how to run a business that's a little bit different than what's out there. Yeah, that's a great point. I know Southwest has some very unique uh, advertising campaigns as well, like uh, Bags Fly Free. That's a slogan in one of their campaigns. Uh, so I guess it's, it's identifying those common frustrations that you just uh, mentioned and then uh, building your company and, and all your marketing around that. So those, those yeah. books, again, um, I think the first one you you mentioned you said persuasion. I think it's influence, right, by Robert Cialdini. Uh, yeah, in influence the psychology of persuasion. Psychology of persuasion. The, okay, the full it's... title. <laughs> and then it's coming was... to me now. The yeah, lightning yeah. round. It goes so fast. Yeah. So uh, influence, <laughs> uh, the blue ocean strategy, and the third one was one more time. The the twenty two immutable laws of marketing. Twenty two immutable laws of marketing. Okay. Um, so for one other idea, one or one other question, I wanted to ask you. Um, what do you recommend to people to find uh, profitable product ideas based on one of these common frustrations like you guys did? I mean, you guys kind of chanced upon this brilliant idea, but uh, what if somebody wants to start a business like yours, but they don't know if they have the right idea yet? What do you recommend for, for extracting ideas or for finding the right idea? I, I think a big part of it is psychological to really be, be constantly thinking of solutions. I mean, pretty much anyone going throughout their day is going to run into a bunch of hassles or problems or products that they don't think are good enough or 
you know, to accomplish something, you have to kind of go the long way around when there should be a shorter way. So just be very aware of all those problems and frustrations that you run into in your daily life. Everyone runs into plenty of them. Uh, and then start jotting down ideas and potential solutions to them. Uh, I know James Altucher, who's a, a writer, he has a podcast too. Um, he really advocates for, uh, he's got this process of writing down 10 ideas a day, uh, which I think is a great exercise. And it's all about thinking about or being being open to all those frustrations that you're going to run into and then being very solution-oriented to be thinking about what are the ways that you can be fixing them versus, you know, the average person goes through the day and just complains about all those things instead of thinking about uh, what kind of products or solutions uh, could be could fix them. <laughs> That's great. So the average person just spends their time complaining and then the entrepreneur uh, builds a business to solve that problem. That's great. Yeah, it's a, it's a mindset thing. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, thank you for this great interview. So if, if you had, uh, Fred, if you had one piece of business advice based on your uh, unique experiences as an entrepreneur or your unique experiences working with Google, um, it could also be a recap of something you've already mentioned or something new. Uh, what would you want to? What would you want the listener to take? I'll I'll give you one of each. So to to reiterate, one thing we talked about is uh, that idea of grit and just keep going if you if you really believe in your product. Um, and then the other thing that we kind of touched upon a little bit in at the beginning, but um, you know I think it's really important that that your brand has a story and a personality that people can can really latch onto. Um, I go now that I've done, you know, made a website and a product and done copywriting for the site and stuff. Now, when, when I go to a website of a small company or brand I'm not familiar with, and I look at the about page and I don't see anyone's picture. I don't see any names. I don't see any backstory. It's just like dry corporate stuff. Uh, it's a real turnoff to me. And I, I feel like I don't know who they are or why they're doing what they're doing. And I don't want to buy from them and I want to give them my money. So give people something to connect to, whether that's, you know, a, a founder or a great story behind a product or whatever it is that is why you do what you do and uh, make sure that people know that and, you know, really put that out front because people identify with it and it'll make them care about your brand and your products. Yeah, that's that's great, Fred. Thank you so much. Um, in a previous interview, we actually talked, I talked to a guy named Ben Finnegan and he does e-commerce as well. And what he said is he'll he'll shoot a personal video for every single product page on his website. Um, talking about why he's so passionate about the product, why he loves it so much. And this guy, I think he has more than 300 products. And um, he was kind of saying something similar where he's, he's saying, I need to differentiate myself uh, from a commodity business and uh, get people to engage with. Yeah, that's, that makes total sense. I mean, if he's you know truly passionate about those products, that'll come across and that'll make other people passionate about them. I mean, we... You know, if you want to look at stuff that we've done, some of our most popular blog posts and social media posts and stuff are kind of behind the scenes uh, stuff in our business and for products. You know, for every product before it comes out, we always write a big blog post about why did we make this? Like, here was the design process. Here are the solutions we're thinking about. Here's why this works. Here's why this wouldn't work. Um, and give people kind of a peek behind the scenes there and let them, you know, chime in. And then on social media, we share a lot of the that whole process, you know, from the sketches to uh, designs for stuff and, you know, the first sample, well, it looks like this. It's not perfect, but, you know, we, we think we can get there. Uh, and it kind of invites people in and they like to, to be a part of it and, you know, feel like they can give feedback and go along for the ride with us. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this interview, uh, Fred. Thank you so much for your time and your experiences and story. Um, best of luck with uh, Tortuga Backpacks. Go check out his website, guys. It's uh, www.tortugabackpacks.com. Yep. Thanks, Danny. And uh, thank you again, Fred.